Nate has been preaching through uh, Corinthians, and I'm going to let him continue to do that. Uh, I have decided to go through uh, the Gospel of John. Um, I almost decided to go through the book of Leviticus when I preached, but I thought I'd let the master take that one. You guys are all relieved. All right. Uh, so I, I, part of this is I've decided to... I, I can't follow act, Nate's act, right? It's kind of a hard guy to, uh, to keep up with. So I'm going to do my own thing and go through the Gospel of John whenever I preach. So there's a slight uh, kind of parentheses in the normal preaching schedule. Um, John is an uh, interesting book. It's one of my favorite books, personally. Um, it's different from the other Gospels. If you've read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and then you turn to John, you're expecting to, after reading three Gospels, which kind of uh, tell the same story, maybe from different lenses, you get to John and all of a sudden the story looks somewhat different. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a different story altogether, but uh, John has a very different angle that he takes on Jesus. Uh, that difference has caused a lot of people to doubt its authenticity. Uh, for a long time now, about 150 years, they've been, uh, scholars have been doubting whether or not John has anything historical about uh, what he writes at all, whether it's a, a source for facts about Jesus' life in fact, some of you have heard that John's gospel is a theological gospel, which somehow means that John's not interested in telling us what actually happened. Well, don't believe everything you hear on TV. Uh, don't believe everything you hear from the History Channel, and certainly don't believe everything you hear from biblical scholars. <laughs> um, the, uh, I'll kind of leave it at that. Not that it's not a worthwhile conversation to have. There's lots of good questions to ask about John and what he's doing. Uh, but what I want to say is that uh, John's gospel is actually extremely interested in communicating to us real facts about Jesus' life. In fact, in some ways, uh, John is more interested in the nuts and bolts of Jesus' life, the geography, the historical circumstances, than any of the other synoptics are. In fact, if you read through John, you learn a lot more about uh, the lay of the land in Jerusalem you learn a lot more about the city of Jerusalem. You learn a lot more about what the Jews did in that day than you learn from any other gospel. We're going to see today that actually John is interested not only in communicating uh, theological truths, but how those have been, uh, how those have happened in this world. God made flesh. That this is precisely what John is interested in, in communicating to us how God has taken on flesh. So to deny the historical claims and character of this gospel is to entirely, entirely misunderstand it. To entirely misunderstand it. So this week and next, we're going to look at John's prologue, which is verses 1 through 18. Um, and we're going to take two different angles on it. This week, we're going to talk about Jesus as God's full revelation. And next week, we talk about Jesus as God taking on flesh, uh, which is uh, remarkable, even offensive. Uh, really, we could stay in the prologue for another year, but I won't bore you. Uh, we're going to have to eventually move on. I just want to say this. Uh, John's gospel, instead of focusing on uh, the ministry and the activities of Jesus, especially in Galilee, which you get in the other synoptic gospels, John's gospel comes down from 40,000 feet, where the synoptics are, kind of doing this broad summary. He comes down and zooms in on the person of Jesus himself. John's Gospel is uh, interested in you and I seeing Jesus for who he really is. And certainly what he has done and certainly what he has taught. But John is primarily interested in you beholding the Lamb of God. Beholding the Savior. 
And I'll be honest with you, uh, this is partly why I want to preach through John. Uh, I am hungry to hear this. Uh, I am a doubter. Every morning I wake up and I feel uh, plagued with uncertainty. Most mornings I feel very cold and distant from the Lord. I need to sit and hear about Jesus. Amen? I think most of you are here too. So let's read John 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, that is, life itself. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light or enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'll read that again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word this morning hungry, uh, just as we sang, hungry to be fed from your holy word. I do pray that you would speak to us, that by your spirit you would instruct us, enliven us, Lord, we uh, lay ourselves at your feet hungry and tired and in need of your hand, your word to come and minister to us. We pray especially for you to give us faith this morning, faith to see the Son of God as he really is, faith to receive him. Lord, would you uh, use my words and my thoughts to do these things, uh, to accomplish the purposes for which you've sent your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, and uh, we pray that you would come and do these things now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, the title of my sermon is God Explained. Now, you can kind of feel some of the arrogance of that title, can't you? There's, some, there's somewhat of an offense of that, right? Uh, that I would stand up here and, and presume to be in a position to explain God to you as if uh, it was this beautiful Lego creation that I just made, and I was going to 
slowly unfold it for you and show you and, and write an instruction book that you could slowly put back together this Lego, this Lego piece and, and have mastery over it, right? That's, that's somewhat of the offense of the title of my sermon. Especially, I'm, I'm a young guy, right? Really, really, pastor, you've been a pastor for a year and you think you're going to explain God. It is offensive. It is very offensive. Uh, now, that's not really what I'm after. But uh, on the other hand, uh, we all have this sense of what's offensive about me naming a sermon God explained. And yet, on the other hand, uh, there's, uh, it's not as if uh, the rest of us in the culture have stopped claiming things that we know about God. Right? It's not as if uh, when we feel this offense about someone having this pride and this arrogance to explain God as if they have master over him, as if, on the other hand, we then don't go on to make claims about God ourselves, right? As if we uh, can't claim anything. Uh, in fact, we live in a culture uh, that has finally rediscovered some of the breadth of existence, right? Uh, Western culture has kind of been dominated by this overly materialistic view of humans, right? You are simply blobs of material, and any sense of purpose or identity or meaning or love is just some sort of extrapolation of your DNA. And finally, our culture is saying, actually, that's patently false. That cannot be true. There is a whole spiritual realm to existence that finally our culture, especially in Bellingham, is getting a sense for. That, in fact, we are spiritual beings living in a world that is charged with spirits, and we know only one of whom is good. What I want to really ask this morning is, how can we know God? How can you actually say with any sort of certainty that you know who God is? On the one hand, we have this spiritual culture, and yet on the other hand, we have this base impulse that we're in no position to claim anything about God. So here's the question. How can you actually say that you know God? I have three points this morning. The first uh, is pluralism, positivism, and the possibility of knowing God, or Stoics, scientists, and salvation. Those are all my alliterations. That's all I got. So pluralism, positivism, and the possibility of knowing God. Uh, the second point will be on Jesus as God himself, and the third will be on uh, that Jesus is all God wants to say to us. So we want to seek God. This is the first point. We want to seek God, to have something to say about God. And our culture uh, is full of much talk about God. Uh, indeed, in some ways, uh, right, you kind of read through Acts 17, and, and Paul is at the Areopagus in a Athens, and you get this sense that, you know, Luke says that in Athens, all they did, they, the people in Athens did nothing but sit around and talk about new ideas. <laughs> right? Uh, that's kind of our culture in some ways, and it feels very similar. In fact, we take our diversity of views to be a, a sign of our, our, our harmony and our tolerance, and you know what? Uh, in large part, it is. Uh, but I think uh, behind this tolerance, there is a belief, however unconscious, uh, that all of our God talk is just that, talk. Right? You've all heard the story of the five blind men who come up to the elephant, right? And... Uh, someone asks them, what kind of animal are you feeling? And one feeling the trunk says, you know, it's a snake. Or another one or, you know, feels the, the leg and says, this is clearly a Douglas fir, you know, this massive tree. Another one feels the side, and this is a wall. They all have these different perspectives, and they can't see the whole. And this is often the story told about religions, right? Uh, that uh, 
basically, we're all describing the same God, but with different names. Now, in order to say that, you have to really ignore some of the blatant contradictions between these various claims on God, right? Obviously, a snake and a tree are not the same, and so uh, we have to really work to ignore some of these things. But really, if you're going to start talking that way, that, uh, that all of us are describing the same God, but with different names, uh, basically what you end up with at the end of the day is just a blatant relativism, right? Just, it's all the same. There is no distinction between uh, what you claim and what I claim. And really, what you have to kind of hold to is uh, you have to begin saying that God is not only uh, something that we all know, but he is basically in everything. That God is everything. That there is no distinction between our life here and God. You have to basically say that in order to know him, if we really want to claim to know him, then he has to be the same as us. In fact, uh, there's, a, there's a movie that talks about this, I Heart Huckabees, I wouldn't recommend it, but they have this image of, uh, there's these two characters, they call themselves existential detectives. Anyways, uh, it's a funny movie, but existentialism basically claims that we are all part of the same fabric, okay? that we are simply different instances of existence. And so there is no distinction between you and I, there's no distinction between me and God. In fact, uh, this is no new belief, by the way. Uh, you're all familiar with the term the Stoics. Well, they were an actual philosophical group, and here's what they said. God is the craftsman of the universe, as it were, the father of all things. Sounds pretty good so far. Both in general and also uh, things that are part of him. That part of him which extends through everything. He is called by many names in accordance with its powers. Zeno, this is one of the classic Stoic philosophers, says that the entire cosmos and the heaven are the substance of God. You hear that? So now... When we want to be able to claim anything about God, we have to say that the substance, the thing that makes up all of reality is the same as God. And so now, I'm the same as God. And that's how I can say anything meaningful. So in this concept, uh, salvation, okay, uh, salvation is uh, not striving to have mastery over who God is, but just being, stopping striving. Okay? So, uh, God, this kind of person would say, is in all things, and thus we don't need to strive or fight or struggle, but embrace our lot with peace and contentment. In fact, we just need to stop striving altogether and just be. And so in one sense, uh, when we begin to claim to know things about God, and yet we say God is the same as us, what happens? That, that becomes absolutely meaningless, right? We're not actually saying anything about anyone. Uh, God is meaningless, and so uh, one example of this is if we really believe that there is no distinction between us and God, when we're parenting our children, I'm really not meaning to bash uh, this view, but let's just think about this consistently. When we're instructing our children, uh, if we really believe that there is no distinction, uh, then we are not striving to teach our children what's true and what they need to uh, struggle towards, but rather we're teaching them to simply explore their inner divine self. You guys tracking with me? So uh, rather than uh, there being right and wrong, we are simply exploring who we really are. There's an exploration of ourselves. Salvation is personal enlightenment that allows us to stop reaching and simply be in this 
in this view. Now, the rest of us, there's another side of our culture, right? The more scientifically minded. And uh, the more scientifically minded folks would say, uh, would often compare our God talk to the, the ways my, my boys talk about themselves when they have their various uh, costumes on, right? Uh, so uh, the cape and the Superman shirt and various other things they put on. I have a blaster that will cut through your force field, but my force field can't be punctured, and my laser beams are stronger than your laser beams. Or, I, you know, I am the queen of all the horsies, right? We make, the kids love to make the pretend scenarios, these personas, which is adorable and delightful. And, and really, you know, we all see this as parents as they're having fun. It's cute, and it is. So from the view of the more scientifically-minded folks, uh, when we talk about who God is, uh, the way that that's viewed is uh, you're making uh, just statements about who you think this God is to comfort yourself, right? It's a, it's a psychological crutch. We've all heard that before. Uh, and the reason why, that's, why they view it that way is not because they're mean, uh, but because uh, in their minds, uh, it is impossible to actually say anything about God because he is so totally other. Because he is so far removed from us that we can't actually know anything about him. So fine, Christians, you can talk all day long about all you want about God and have your God talk. That's wonderful. If that comforts you, it's good for you. Great. Happy for you. But we all know that at the end of the day, God is so far removed from you that you're just... You're just sputtering words. doesn't mean anything. God, they would say, cannot be known. Plato uh, was one such person, and he believed that uh, the most pure, holy, and transcendent being, the one who has given form to all things, indeed the form of the forms himself, the good, he called him, cannot be known by earthbound creatures with appetites and desires running rampant. The problem, Plato would say, for us is that we are so earthly that we can't know God. And so in his mind, uh, mothers, you couldn't know God because you're busy attending to the needs of your children. Right? If you really want to know God, you have to transcend and put down all your hungers, all your appetites, all your desires, and you simply need to approach God through absolute pure reason and logic. And even then, uh, it's doubtful. Uh, Islam kind of functions this way, by the way, uh, that God is so totally other uh, that you have to perform certain spiritual duties with absolute rigor and perfection so that you might have a chance of pleasing, reaching God in his perfection. So salvation for this uh, view that sees God as totally transcendent and unknowable is uh, for us to move beyond our human limitations and to somehow become God-like. In a word, salvation is progress. Right? Progress, being better, being a better self, progressing, being stronger, being smarter, working hard enough, being smarter than anyone else, to the point that we ourselves are in total mastery of the world. Salvation is enlightenment, again, but in a totally different direction. One that allows us to reach some sort of, some sort of form of godhood. One that allows us to reach some, some form of idealized progress.
So this is, this is the world we live in. On the one hand, we can totally know God because, in fact, we're all of the same fabric. On the other hand, God is totally unknowable. And so we ourselves need to just, uh, we need to be the masters of this world. Then enters Christianity. From the very beginning of Genesis, uh, the God who uh, is totally transcendent, who has, you read Genesis 1, how does it begin? In the beginning, God. The God who is, before anything else began, the God who is totally self-sufficient and does not need us, speaks. Our God speaks. He speaks creation into being. He is not distant, not unknown, not nebulous, not silent. He is present, and he speaks. He reveals himself. In fact, how does God make the world? He speaks it into existence. God utters words. In fact, Psalm 19 says that God has so spoken all things into existence that all of the world is reverberating, filled with echoes, constantly speaking back to God that he is the true creator. So rather than being totally unknowable or totally the same as us, the Christian God is both transcendent and imminent. He is both holy, true God, above all, and yet comes and lives and dwells with us. Listen to this promise from Leviticus of all books. I will make my dwelling among you. My soul will delight in you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. The Christian God is the one who dwells with his people. He crafts man from the dust. He puts very, his very breath into him. Uh, how astounding is it? You think, of me, think with me for this, just for a second. That God existed by himself without need of us, perfectly happy and filled with joy, joy of communion between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, sufficient in himself, sufficient in love and in glory, had no need of us. And yet, what? He spoke. He stooped down. He touched and crafted man. He breathed life into a body. You almost get this image of CPR, right? Like mouth to mouth. There is communication. There is touch between the holy God who is totally transcendent and yet he comes down and he touched. That this God would give of himself so much that he actually rests and enjoys his creation. That's how the Bible begins. That's the first chapter. <laughs> That's the whole Old Testament, in fact, that God is not only occasionally speaking and occasionally doing things for his people, but constantly dwelling with his people, speaking, touching, healing, sending, gathering, leading. And yet all of those things, John says, are just a foretaste of the full meal. They're a foreshadow of the full picture that we have in Jesus. And that's what we have before us today. And it's precisely because of what John says here that we can actually know God. 
And this is my second point. So the first is the way that you view God actually changes dramatically what you can, can and can't know about him. Uh, then our second point is that Jesus is God explained. Jesus is God explained. Not, not me, by the way. <laughs> Verse 18, look at this with me. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You know, uh, part of the reason why I love John is because John is so refreshingly honest, isn't he? No one has ever seen God. Uh, sometimes in Christian circles, we have this feeling, this, this pressure, that somehow to be a legit Christian, uh, you have to, at some point in your life, have heard audibly from God the Father. Or, better than that, if you really want to get real street cred in the Christian world, you have to have seen God appear, had a vision, perhaps, or had some, some moment of some sort of supernatural ecstasy to the point that you could say, I have seen God. But what does John say? He throws it out the window. No one has ever seen God. You don't need to feel that pressure. No one has ever seen God. Now, that doesn't mean that he's throwing out all spiritual experiences, and I'm certainly not meaning to do that either. In fact, the Spirit is with us. In fact, that is the whole reason why all of us are here. And in fact, the Old Testament, what? The people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is covered with clouds, clouds of fire and lightning. God's very presence is certainly there, and God speaks audibly, and that, they actually do hear God's voice audibly. John doesn't throw any of that out, but he says that None of us have seen God, and what seen means is knowing. And not just knowing, but knowing from the inside. Knowing from the inside. No one has ever known God from the inside. We are not insiders, brothers and sisters. We are creatures. And we don't need to pretend to be more than that. We are creatures. Knowing from the inside means having the ultimate perspective on who God is. And this is kind of like your kids, right? My kids, if you were to ask my children what I love and what I'm like, they'd probably have a much better answer for you on a good day than, uh, than the rest of you. And the same for your kids. Or the same for your parents. They know you from the inside. In some ways, uh, you know, the scientifically-minded folks are actually kind of right here, right? Uh, partially, at least. We cannot prove anything about God on our own. We can't prove anything about God on our own. We are actually uh, not in a place to guarantee to anyone else who God is. Nor should we expect ourselves to somehow reach some sort of godhood that we could do that, or to study enough to be able to prove to everyone else and to our neighbors that they ought to believe in God forever and ever. John tells us, rather, that we need God. You need God to show himself to you. That's how the gospel begins. We are not in a position to somehow decide who God is, but we need him to come and knock on our doors and get into our lives and speak to us. That's good news.
It's good news because uh, verse 18, the end of it, continues. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Okay, so that word made him known, uh, we get the word exegesis or exegete from. It means to explain or to expound, okay? Uh, someone tells you about a series of events and they exegete it to you. They explain the events and they tell you what it means. So when John says that Jesus has made God known, what he's telling us is that, if, is that God has been explained in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is the full explanation of who God is. I just want to pause here for a second and just say, uh, you know, for a lot of us, uh, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, feels sometimes uh, perhaps a bit dusty, perhaps a bit arcane, maybe speculative, right? Oh, the doctrine of the Trinity, that's hard stuff. I, it is hard. It's hard to articulate well. It's hard to talk about. But I just want to say, you know, brothers and sisters, this, the doctrine of the Trinity is not some sort of speculation about stuff out there. The doctrine of who God is is your very lifeblood. And it happens in this verse. You can see it right here. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. My point is just this. If Jesus is not God himself, the only God, then we don't know God. Because if Jesus is not the only God, if he's just some sort of messenger who came and had some good things to say, what authority does he have to claim that he has explained who God is? Nothing. It is only God himself that can teach us who he is. The Trinity, brothers and sisters, is not speculation. It is our salvation. God himself is our lifeblood. We have the doctrine of the Trinity in this verse and in verse 1 in these little nutshells that God is one and yet there's a plurality of persons in the Godhead. The Son is not only united to the Father but intimate and close with God the Father. You can see this uh, that in verse 18. The only God who is at the Father's side, literally bosom, we don't use that word anymore, <laughs> okay? But uh, in the end of John, you have John reclining John the Apostle reclining on Jesus' side, basically leaning up against Jesus and snuggling. <laughs> okay? Now, maybe not quite that way, the, the way we do with our children, but in the sense of having their arms around each other. This close bond of loyalty, of fellowship, of deep friendship and intimacy. That's what John has with Jesus, and what John tells us here is that that is what Jesus has with the Father. So he's not simply the same as God. He is God himself and actually has not only a union, but a deep fellowship, a deep intimacy. Jesus is not simply Son, but beloved Son. Jesus is not simply distinct from the Father, but the very object of the Father's affection. And what that means is that the very one who is beloved of the Father, the one who knows the Father from the inside, has come and taken on flesh. You could touch him. In fact, John says in his letter to another church, he says, we have handled God. We've handled him, touched his body. True God True God, true light, 
the one in whom is life itself, has spoken to us and has been with man. That's how you can know God. The Son is very God, and so he makes known very God. I just want to say, when we begin to forget the Trinity, and brothers and sisters, it's a, it's a teaching you grow in. It's not something you master. It is mysterious. When we forget the Trinity, we are going to fall off on either side of the horse, either to where God is unknowable or to where we functionally are God. Now, I just want to say that Christianity doesn't necessarily solve all your questions. It answers a lot more questions than you realized you had, but God's explained through another mysterious person. <laughs> right? God is explained through very God who became very man as well. That doesn't necessarily make everything plain as day, uh, but it does give us quite a bit of assurance. Uh, next thing I want to say just along these lines is that if Jesus is the word of God okay, if Jesus is the very word of God that's what verse 1 says what does that mean? Okay, Jesus is God explained and he's the word I just want to say this all that God has wanted to say he has said in Jesus all that God has wanted to say he has said in the person of Jesus. Listen to this from Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you want to know what God is like? Do you? Behold him in Jesus. Do you doubt his goodness? Behold Jesus touching the sick, tenderly healing the outcast. Do you suspect God to be stingy and self-absorbed? Are these the questions your heart asks? Behold him who is God himself, born in a manger, son of a blue-collar bumpkin. Behold him, the very radiance of the glory of God, being baptized as one of us, as if he were a sinner, taking our sins upon himself. Do you wonder what the good and all-powerful God has to do with evil? Behold, the just judge of all the earth, Falsely accused. The one who has given all authority to men and governors, stripped, shamed, whipped, and flogged before Pilate, the very one he gave power to. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, spit on and mocked, held up by nails, dying the unjust death of a criminal. Do you wonder if God loves you? Do you doubt his word? Behold Jesus the King, the very center of the Father's delight, absorbing the wrath for our sins and our enmity, our rebellion. Behold the one through whom all things were made, getting down on the ground and washing his disciples' feet. 
Behold, the word of God, the very center of God's promises to us, who has himself sealed the trustworthiness of his promises with his own blood. Yes, his defeat of death and coming back from the dead in a glorified body. Brothers and sisters, if you want to know God, behold Jesus. Behold Jesus. Amen. The last thing I'll say is this, and I'll make it quick. God has spoken to us in a person. And this is probably the most offensive part for us as Westerners. That God has spoken to us in a person. You see this in verses 11 and 12. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Receiving, by the way, is not something you do of propositions and statements and facts. Receiving is something you do of a person. You welcome them into your home. You listen to them. You honor them. Receiving is something you cannot do uh, and still be the master. Uh, Jesus is the focal point and climax of Revelation. All that God has wanted to say, he said in Jesus. And so what this means is that Jesus is not simply a moral teacher... Right? He doesn't just say nice things. Uh, he's not simply the last of the prophets or a special prophet. And he's not simply a servant of God's kingdom as if he's trying to build something for us and that's nice. And he leaves it and goodbye, thank you. Jesus himself is the announcement of God's word. Jesus himself is our salvation. He is the subject of the kingdom of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, and Jesus announces the kingdom in this way. And John, you see very little discussion of those, but rather discussion of himself. And that is because Jesus is, he is the kingdom for us. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I know the way, I know the truth, I know the life. No, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life no one may come to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Here's an example of how this works. Uh, this is from a longtime missionary, Leslie Newbigin, who was working in India for a number of years. Very sharp guy. Thought a lot about how we know things. He says, there's a, a radical break between these two kinds of knowing. The knowing often associated with the natural sciences and the knowing involved in personal relations. We often experience this radical break, for example, when someone about whom we have been talking unexpectedly comes into the room. Oh, you're here. We discuss an absent person in a manner that leaves us in full control of the discussion. We can say whatever we want. But if that person comes into the room, we must either break off the discussion or change into a different mode of talking. If, so to say, God himself has actually entered the room and spoken, we have to stop our former discussion and listen. Instead of asking all the questions, we must answer the questions put to us by the other. Brothers and sisters, what I want to say to you this morning is that God has entered the room. God has entered the room and he knows all that you are dealing with, not from a distance, from the inside. 
because he became true man. You want forgiveness? You want reconciliation? Yes, of course. You want righteousness? Of course. Who doesn't want to be right? You want salvation and enlightenment? You must receive Jesus, the person. This means that enlightenment or salvation is not some sort of commodity that you can buy. Right? It's not some sort of uh, program that you can go through and follow these steps or subscribe even to this system of doctrine and now you possess this enlightenment as an object. You possess this salvation as a thing that now you get to walk away with. If you want the forgiveness that is in Christ, the hope and the knowledge of God, you don't get to possess. You have to reckon with the person himself and in fact, be possessed. Be owned by the true God, by the other. We need to stop pretending to be in control. So if you're here visiting, uh, or maybe uh, you've been here for some time and you would say you don't know God, let me just say this. Uh, Throw yourself on Jesus recklessly. Ask him. Ask him to speak to you. He does. He does. The Lord comes and meets people. He comes and speaks. He gets into their lives. God enters the room. But that also means that you have to be willing to receive him, to turn to him, to a person, to turn and listen and acknowledge. If this is not your first time, my dear brothers and sisters, if you are a stable and established Christian as well, let me just say this. What good does your soul know apart from Jesus himself? What joy do you have apart from clinging to Jesus? What more could you want than to behold the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, welcoming us into the bond of intimacy that he has with his Father? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we give you glory because uh, you have come into our lives. You have come and uh, meddled in our kitchen. God, you are uh, certainly holy and beautiful and transcendent, and yet you are also near and you speak to us. I pray for all of us that you would come and speak to us this week by your Spirit, that we would truly know you, and in knowing you have eternal life. Lord, we are hungry for you to speak. Give us eyes of faith to behold you, Lord Jesus. For those of us here who do not have faith, we pray that you would grow that very thing in their hearts, that they would be able to see you, Jesus, the Son of God.